Well, good morning, Genesis. My name is Michael. I serve as uh, one of the pastors here. Sincerely, just want to say thanks for taking time on a Sunday morning to be with us. And just in case no one has said it yet, uh, welcome to October. I have no idea how we got to October, but we are in October and uh, we're excited for the fall season. But as I was just looking back this past week, uh, we had a pretty incredible September here at Genesis. And we did a series called Renewed. And it was exciting and encouraging and inspiring just to see how many people made statements and uh, offered up prayers to say, God, I want to be renewed in this. I want to be renewed in my faith or trust in you. And then if you were here last Sunday, uh, we do these uh, services a couple times throughout the year called Get Drenched. And as the conclusion to our Renewed series, uh, we gave the opportunity really to anyone who had never been baptized before. And baptism is really that moment where you just say, hey, I'm not just kind of following uh, a fan of Jesus just from a distance. I've made the decision I'm actually following him in my life. There were 17 men and women that entered into the waters last Sunday between all three services uh, really to make that declaration. So it was very encouraging Last Sunday, it's been very encouraging to see what God's been doing uh, in the month of September, but today we start something new, and it's something actually we started last February, where today we begin or continue our journey through the story of Exodus. Now, if you weren't here in February, that's okay, but when we started Exodus, we broke down Exodus in, uh, we wanted to tell the story of Exodus through the different stories that Exodus tells us. And so the very first story that we looked at last February was called the story of hope. And as we looked at the story of hope in Exodus, we meet a people that had been in bondage, in brutal bondage, in slavery uh, for nearly 400 years and to the different pharaohs of Egypt. And the people, as you can only imagine, have lost a lot of hope. They begin to just wonder, God, we've been crying out to you for deliverance for now 400 years, and we haven't seen anything happen. And so we see a people that are losing hope and beginning to wonder, maybe God just doesn't care. Maybe God has completely forgotten about us and is just no longer even interested in us. But as we saw in the story of hope, God introduces and raises up a deliverer, and that deliverer's name was Moses. And so as Moses comes on into the scene uh, in Egypt, we see that the men and women, the people of God of Israel, now hope is on the rise because God is potentially doing something with this deliverer, Moses. And then we transitioned after Easter into the story of power. And that is the second story that we look at in Exodus. And the story of power really is this colossal battle that takes place between God and Pharaoh at the time. And ultimately, it's a battle that Pharaoh lost miserably. And consequently, the entire nation of Egypt was just devastated. But in this uh, story of power, we get to see the people of God, along with the entire nation of Egypt, they actually got to encounter and experience what God's power is actually like. They saw God's power over the sea, God's power over the land and all that dwells on the land, and they got to see God's power over the sky. So they experienced the power of God in many ways, the 10 plagues. But the power that the people of God got to actually experience is what you could be, what you'd call God's redemptive power. When God took them through not just the Red Sea, but God brought them into a brand new relationship with Him. 
And as soon as they crossed through, walked through the Red Sea uh, on dry ground, the men and women, about two million people, they break forth in song when they see God's redemptive power. And this is some lyrics from the song that they sang in Exodus chapter 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength, my song. He has given me victory. This is my God. I will praise him. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders. With your unfailing love, you lead the people you have redeemed. And so as we come to the close of the story of power, we see that this people that has now experienced the redemptive power of God, they're filled with awe. They're filled with wonder. They're filled with worship over all that God had done for them. Today, we pick up the third part of the story of Exodus, and the third part of the story is what we're calling the story of community. Now, as we begin this third part of Exodus, the story of community, I wanted to actually share with you something from the New Testament. The story of Exodus is in the Old Testament, but uh, there was a man named Apostle Paul, and he was part of planting many churches in the New Testament, wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament to different churches. And there was a letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth, and he reminded this church in Corinth of the story of community. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. Then he says this, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So roughly 1,500 years had gone by from the parting of the Red Sea to when the Apostle Paul would have written this letter. But something that Paul did not want the church in the first century, nor the church in the 21st century, to forget, he didn't want them to forget what had happened in their story so that we would not repeat it in our story. So there's something so powerful in the story of community that Paul was like, do not forget their story so the things that we can learn from them, we just don't repeat in our story. So as God brings his people out of Egypt and they begin this journey towards the promised land, the question that's really going to serve as our guide every week moving forward through the story of community is this question, how do rescued people live? If you have been rescued by God, brought into relationship with God, how do you live your life? Like, how does a rescued person relate with God? How does a rescued person relate with other people? Like, how do rescued people live lives that are ultimately honoring and good and pleasing, first and foremost, to God? See, why this is such an important question for us to be asking is, maybe this is obvious, but none of us are in heaven yet. None of us have been taken to heaven just yet. When God rescues and redeems a person into a relationship with Him through faith in Christ, He does not always usher that person immediately into heaven. There's a journey that takes place. So how do rescued people live on that journey towards the kingdom of God? How do we live our lives on that journey towards the promised land, towards heaven? 
And so what the story of community is going to help us see is actually how rescued people, how redeemed people live their lives on the journey that God has us on. So this is how the story begins, the story of community in Exodus 15. Just read a few verses. Verse 22, then Moses <clears throat> led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur, and they traveled <clears throat> in the desert for three days without finding any water. And when they came to the oasis of Mara, the water was too bitter to drink. And so they called that place Mara, which means bitter. So the story begins, story of community begins when they enter into the desert. Now, they don't know this now. We know this because we can look back, but they would remain in the desert for the rest of their lives. They don't actually, the people of God, the nation of Israel, does not actually leave the desert for roughly 40 years. It's not until the book of Joshua, chapter 3, where these men and women, the people of God, actually cross the Jordan River into the promised land. And so the desert they were led into, as it says, Moses led them into the desert. It's called the Desert of Shur. And this is a massive and a daunting desert. If you just looked at a modern-day map, the space where this desert is, it's the stretch of land between the Suez Canal and the Negev of Israel. So you're looking at almost 150 miles of very daunting desert. Now, I won't even go camping. So I can't even imagine what it would be like to live in the desert with two million plus people and all of the unique challenges. I make camping jokes a lot. People invite me to go camping. I will never say yes. So no need to invite me to go camping. If there's a hotel near the campsite, I might go with you, but not going camping. So I just can't fathom the challenges that would come with living in the desert with two million plus people. And by the way, they faced immediate challenges just three days at being in the desert, three days, and there's absolutely no water for them. And then they come across this oasis, and you can envision people who are thirsty are like, finally, we'll have some water to drink at this oasis, only to discover that the water that is there is absolutely undrinkable. So if God took the people through the Red Sea in a miraculous way, couldn't he have just taken them to the promised land? Like, doesn't that just seem a little bit easier like, God, if you can do this miraculous thing and traverse two million people through Red Sea on dry ground, why can't you just take them immediately into the promised land which you had promised that would be for them? Well, the answer is God could have done that, but the fact that He chooses not to do that, well, we ask the question of why. Why doesn't God take them to, uh, immediately from this miracle into the promised land? And as I've been thinking about it, I just wrote this note. It's in the desert that God teaches us to trust Him, to follow Him, and to love Him. It's often in the desert that God grows us to men and women that would trust Him, that would love Him, and that would follow Him. Uh, Philip Ryken is an um, author, scholar, theologian. And in a book he wrote on Exodus, he said this, going through the wilderness was not necessary for Israel's salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. It wasn't necessary for them to be rescued 
right relationship with God, but it was utterly necessary for their sanctification. If you're not familiar with that word sanctification, sanctification is that long process of God helping us to grow that we look more and more like Jesus each and every day. It's that process of being purified. It's that process of being refined. And more times than not, God uses the desert to purify His people, to sanctify rescued people. It's been said that God got Israel out of Egypt, but God would have to use the desert to get Egypt out of Israel. They had been living in Israel for 400 years, so they had learned their values, they had learned their ways, they had learned their practices of worship. It would take the desert to get Egypt out of the community of Israel so that they might be a refined, rescued people. So desert experiences are ultimately intended by God to grow us, to help us learn, to help us grow in our love for God, our trust for God, ultimately our walk with God. And as we see here in Exodus 15, God will often position us in a place where we have no other recourse other than to trust God alone. He did that for them, and He often does that for us. He will put things in our path where we have no other alternative but to trust in Him alone. So keep in mind that three days prior, uh, about uh, three days prior to coming across the bitter waters of Marah, they had just come through the Red Sea in a miraculous way. So does anyone want to take a guess as to how they actually responded to being without water for three days? You can kind of get a clue about how they responded because they named this oasis bitter. They named this uh, oasis Mara, which just means bitter. But the response is here in Exodus chapter 15, verse 24. Then the people complained and they turned against Moses. What are we going to drink? They demanded. Moses, this is your fault. You're the one who brought us out here. So we're bringing our complaint to you. Now, by show of hands, and be honest here, I want you to participate this. So show of hands, raise your hand. If any of us here, if you in your heart or in your mind or maybe even gave voice to, how many of us here complained this week? Raise your hand. Okay, so welcome to Genesis. We are a community of complainers. So glad that you are here. So since we're basically a community of complainers, let me ask this question. Did complaining change anything for you? Did complaining actually help you to grow and look a little bit more like Jesus this week? And did complaining actually help anyone in your life actually see Jesus a little bit more clearly? It's safe to say that the answer to all of those questions would be a resounding no. But yet we complain anyways. We know that it's not helpful to us. We know that it's not helpful to other people. But yet complaining seems to be our natural inclination. Without even thinking about it, it's often our first response. And so for me, I've been thinking this past week, Michael, why are you so good at complaining? I don't often maybe give voice to it, but man, the conversations that I have in my head, in my heart, why is complaining so quick and easy for you to go down that road? And what I've been thinking about is this, of why complaining has become so easy for me, is when God is forgotten, complaining will be present. 
When we forget God and who He is and what He's done and what He has promised to do, when we forget that, complaining will be the first things that are rolling in our minds and rolling off our tongues. No sooner do the Israelites leave Egypt under the most miraculous of circumstances, three days prior that they leave Egypt and they are singing these songs of praise to God about how good He is, but it just literally took three days for them to begin complaining. They go literally from singing, the Lord is my strength, He is my victory, unfailing love that you have, that you have led and rescued your people, to three days later, they're singing a new song, and the lyrics would probably sound something like this, God, what have you done for us lately? Now, it would be easy for us to kind of sit back and think to ourselves, gosh, what is wrong with these people? Three days? I mean, come on, you just saw the Red Sea part. You literally physically walked through. How could you possibly have your first response to, be, to begin to be bitter in your complaint? Let me ask you this question. What will you be like three days from now? Wednesday, what will you be like three days from now? And maybe just even challenge you a little bit more. What will you be like three hours from now? Because literally 10 minutes ago, we were singing these songs where our songs were, the King is here, eternal praise to you. And we sing songs of Christ, hallelujah, Christ is risen from the grave. But how long, since we've all confessed that we're complainers, will it take for you to go from singing that song about how good and great God is to just bitter complain of, what have you done for me lately? For the nation of Israel, it did not take long. It just took three days for them to forget all that God had done. Now, things were not going their way. And when things didn't go their way, complaint was the response. And the things not going, they're in the desert, less than ideal, and they have no drinkable water. So if we know that bitter complaint is not the path that rescued people are called to take... If a complaining person ultimately is painting this picture of someone who has just forgotten God and forgotten who God is and what God is like and what God has promised, if we're not called to be people of bitter complaint, then what are we supposed to do? And Moses gives us the example that we're not to forget. Verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord for help. Moses cried out to the Lord for help. Clearly, Moses could have complained to God about these people complaining to him. You ever done that before? You start complaining about someone who's complaining to you, but somehow your complaining is, is justified? Moses could have just began complaining to God about this complaining community, but rather than complaining, Moses does the one thing that rescued people are called to do. Rescued people cry out to God for help. That's what rescued people do. We're not people of bitter complaint. Rescued people cry out to God for help. The need that they had was real. It was actually a life or death need. So Moses goes to the very one who could do something about the situation and circumstance that they were in. See, the people had their eyes just fixated and focused on what they didn't have, clean, drinkable water, but Moses had his eyes fixated on God. 
The people, they complain to Moses, but Moses, he cries out to God. And as you're about to see, when Moses cried out to God, that one prayer of crying out to God did more for the entire nation than the entire nation of people actually complaining. So again, a question I've been thinking about is, Michael, what would it take in your life to actually learn that complaining accomplishes nothing and crying out to God is the path that a rescued person is called to take? What would it take for you and I to learn that complaining is not what God has for us, but actually crying out to Him is so much better than complaining? Since you all admitted that you complained this week, what did you complain about? Wouldn't it be a long list? I mean, we complain about everything. Complain about the marriage we have. We complain about the marriage we don't have. We complain about our school. We complain about our jobs. We complain about the people that we work with and have to deal with. We complain about the people in our homes. We complain about the things that we don't have, but we really think we want to have. We complain about the culture that we live in. We complain about the politics of the culture that we live in. Like the list of things that we complain about could be really, really long. But I want you to know that complaining uh, is never commended in Scripture as a good thing. There's not a point in Scripture where God looks to someone who is complaining to themselves or complaining to other people and says, yeah, that's exactly the path that I have. That is the appropriate response to the situation or circumstance that you're in. Since we've all admitted we complain, we might not want to hear this, but complaining is actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. Complaining is a sign of an insecure person. Complaining is evidence of someone who is selfish and self-centered. We're not called to be people of bitter complaint. And I know that we just complain so easily, quickly, and naturally that we kind of laugh it off and think to ourselves, it's not really that big of a deal. You know, I'm often just kidding with my complaint. But I'll just be honest with you and tell you that spiritual maturity is a really big deal to God. I would tell you that selfishness and self-centeredness is a really big deal to God. In my own life, how God is teaching me that crying out is so much better than complaining is that He's placing me in situations and circumstances daily that I'm having my eyes open to see that I have a choice. Will I complain or will I cry out? And I'm starting to see just an ebb and flow of a normal day of I'm being placed in situations and circumstances. Sometimes it's a relational thing. Sometimes it's just a challenge of something that's happening here. Will you be a person who complains or will you be a person who cries out? We know that complaining accomplishes absolute nothing. But I love God's response to Moses. It actually shows us how much can be accomplished if you and I would just cry out to God. Because this is how God responded to Moses. Verse 25 again, Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. Now, the miracle of this provision is not so much that God showed Moses a piece of wood, told him to throw it into the water, and this wood miraculously purifies the water so that it's actually good and safe to drink. That is miraculous in many ways. But I think what is even more miraculous to me is this, that God made bitter water sweet for bitter people. I love this picture, this demonstration of God's grace, 
that God made bitter water sweet for a bitter people. God met their grumbling, bitter grumbling, with an extraordinary amount of grace. I know that I wouldn't have to convince any of us here that this side of heaven, this side of the promised land, we are going to go through many bitter things. We will. Disease, that is a bitter thing. Divorce, that's a bitter thing. Death, that is a bitter thing. Darkness, meaning evil, is an absolutely bitter thing. But bitter things do not need to turn us into bitter people because God has given us a different way of, rather than bitter complaint, to be a people that would cry out to God. And the beauty of those that cry out to God, like Moses did, is not only will you experience the grace of God, but the people around you, people in your home, people that you live with, people in your school, people in your place of work. God's grace is not just for you, but it's felt by the men and women around you. Like, I love this picture of God just didn't tell Moses, Moses, there's a place of water, you go drink for yourself. I love that God says, Moses, these bitter people, I still love them, and I want to be gracious to them. Because Moses cried out, the entire community experienced the grace of God. But God's grace is not intended just to be this one-off experience in a circumstance or a situation throughout the day. God has invited us to actually walk in and experience and encounter His grace every moment of every day, not just for us, so that the people around us will be impacted by God's grace through our lives. This is God's invitation to His people in Exodus 15. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to Him. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, obeying His commands and keeping all His decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. What God is inviting Moses and the people of God, a rescued people, into if you would just go the way of God, if you would choose to walk the path of God, if you would listen and follow His voice, if you would do what is right in His sight, well, the promise from God to you, to them, is that it will go well with you. You will experience grace upon grace upon grace. You will experience His provision, His protection, His healing. But I also love and am very thankful that God in this invitation, if you follow me, it will go well for you and those around you. But if you choose to do your own thing, if you choose to ignore my voice, if you choose to ignore my way, if you choose to set aside my decrees, what I have for you, and just go do your own thing, it will not go well for you. You will experience the consequences of sinful, selfish, self-centered choices that you are going to make. God invites us to walk with Him in the way that He has called us to walk with Him. And in that path, we experience God. We experience His grace, provision and protection and peace and kindness. Today, we've all admitted, all of us here, that we are complainers. Whether we somehow think our complaining is justified or not, the message is, if we would just listen carefully to His voice, 
if we would do what is right in His sight, if we'd obey His commands, then today all of us are in the same boat where we need to just simply say, God, I'm repenting of my complaining. I'm repenting of my bitter complaint, and God, I'm choosing today to be a man or a woman that will cry out to you for help. I don't know all that has happened, all that is happening, or all that will happen that might be bitter in your life, but I do know this from the story of community in Exodus 15, is that rescued people cry out to God for help. Rescued people do not complain. This just simply means that we, doesn't mean that we're going to get everything that we want, but in crying out to God, He will give you and I everything that we need to keep walking with Him in ways that are consistent with how rescued people walk.